Hello and welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary, Season 3, Episode 9, for Saturday the 6th of March 2021. And coming up this week, we've been let off the leash in Spain. So this week I've been in Alicante and Benidorm since I last spoke to you. Consequently, it's been a bit of a quiet week writing-wise, but as ever, I do have several writing updates for you. And I have received an interesting invitation from Amazon Prime Reading. Just to let you know why the sound is a little bit different this week... I'm in Benidorm at the moment, in our covered terrace, and I'm going to do a little bit of showbiz for you here. I'm going to open the window, we're 14 floors up, and allow you to hear the sounds of Benidorm at night. You're hanging out of a window at the moment, 14 floors up. It's quite scary when you look down, actually. It's virtually silent. If you listen very carefully, you might hear the sea, because we can see the sea from here but it's completely dead at night. The Spanish authorities just freed things up a little bit during the week, and that meant that we were able to travel from Torrevieja to Alicante. We stayed in Alicante overnight and went for a run on the beach in the morning. Then we moved up to Benidorm. We're here till next, I think it's next Wednesday, next Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe next Tuesday, that sounds about right. Then we'll overnight in Alicante, and then we're back to Torrevieja again. But this is the trip that we had to cancel a couple of weeks ago because they imposed those regulations, those restrictions. And uh, at the moment, as I say, you can still eat out. We've eaten out today. We've been drinking out uh, near the beach, just opposite the beach. But at 6 o'clock, everything closes right down. So there's not a curfew as such. The curfew starts at 10, but the restaurants all close down, the pubs. There's, there's nothing open at all here after six o'clock. I do have some big Spain news for you, but this is a writing podcast, so I'll leave that until the end of the podcast if you're interested to catch up with that. So let's get on with the writing news then, and we'll start with book bubs, why not? I submitted Left for Dead for a book bub, and if you recall Left for Dead currently is in KDP Select. We know that BookBub don't like KDP Select. Uh, they only occasionally will give you one of their featured deals on one of those. So it was, as anticipated, rejected. Uh, I've had a whole load of rejections recently, and that's because, obviously, I'm in <laughs> KDP Select. Though having said that, and this really adds insult to injury, if you cast your mind way back with The Secret Bunker, they offered me a BookBub featured deal on The Secret Bunker when it was listed wide, but they insisted that I put it in the horror category. And as you know, I moaned about being in the horror category because although book one, you know, at a push, could be in the horror category, the whole trilogy is not horror. It's very definitely sci-fi. It's, it goes into military sci-fi zone as you go into books two and book three. So I don't really like it being in the horror category. However... I've submitted it. Uh, so well, I asked them. I, they offered me a deal, and I said no, thanks very much. So I rejected a bookbub deal, and now they're playing hard to get with me because the secret bunker is now listed wide again. And I submitted it for a deal, and I submitted it in the horror category. I didn't even put it in the sci-fi category. I put it in the horror category, and they knocked me back. So they're getting their revenge on me now. Anyhow, you know, as ever, what I do with bookbub is as soon as I'm rejected, I just put it in my diary and I keep submitting it. And every now and then, as you know, you get one. Uh, the other thing I've done in terms of thrillers, I have submitted my Morecambe Bay 3 trilogy to BookBub this week. Haven't had a response back from that one yet. But because it's in KDP Select, I put money on that it will get knocked back. But that doesn't stop me going for it. So 
if you're not if you've never done book bubs before if you're new to it don't be worried about it if you get knocked back it's just part of the course you you generally got knocked back for about nine and then you'll get maybe one in ten something like that but they're so uh, lucrative they do make so much money even like with the secret not the secret bunker with well the secret bunker and don't tell meg which have had several book bubs the money does go down over time but it's always worth having you always make a profit on them even when they've quietened down so book bub featured deals are well worth trying for i managed to get my second consultancy session in with kirsten oliphant this week and we only did an hour actually we only did an hour this week and we were talking about amazon ads and just like the Facebook session that I had with Kiss, and it was incredibly useful, incredibly helpful. And she just went through, she looked at my ads. I was, I was very pleased to see, actually, um, I organised my ads into the top performers. She interestingly mentioned a column, which I didn't have active in my ads. So it was the orders column. And I didn't have that activated. So I was looking at ACOS, average cost of sale, which frankly, ACOS is like algebra to me. Um, you know, algebra age 12, when you're at secondary school, and you're looking at this thing, and you, you can't make head or tail of it. That's what ACOS is like to me. It's this, this mystery figure that I'm supposed to understand, and it's supposed to inform me about how my Amazon ads are doing. And to be honest with you, you know, that's, I don't really like ACOS. A lot of people say don't work off ACOS. So I prefer to look at clicks. I always look at what those clicks are costing me. And then I was looking at the, the kind of sales, the income that I had. But uh, Kirsten mentioned orders. I don't think orders has been on my radar at all. And she, so I activated the orders column. And then that was very, very interesting to see how many orders, how many sales you've got. And then she gave me a ratio which, uh, as, I'm, as I'm talking to you live now, and I can't edit this week because this, this is being recorded on a, on a mobile phone, I can't actually remember what the ratio is. So I'll put it on the show notes. That's the easiest thing. If I remember, I'll put it on the show notes. But she showed me how to create a ratio with two of the numbers. And if that ratio was one in 10 or above or 10% or above, she said, then that's good. And she looked at a load of my ads and said, they're all really good ads. They're performing extremely well, or they have performed extremely well in the past. So that in itself was worth the session. And she said that she, uh, oh, she also talked about the, there's a new kind of ad in the US. You can't do it in the UK yet, but it's the sponsored brand ads. And uh, again, sometimes I walk straight past things for ages and I, I just don't even see them, even though they're there. I just assumed that they would be, or they weren't something that I could use. But uh, she talked about those and explained how she used those. And I've now got sponsored brand ads set up for my um, Walk and Bay Thriller series, Don't Tell Meg, the Secret Bunker and The Grid because those series work really nicely for those sponsored brand ads. And effectively, what you get is a really nice page with all of your book covers uh, at the top of it. like It's like a bespoke Amazon page and you obviously use the normal uh, adverts that you use on Amazon, but instead of going to a single book, they go to these special pages. So um, as a consequence of that hour-long session with Kirsten, I sat down, I now have a load of adverts in Amazon, and like you do, I've started with low bids, low starting bids, and I will creep them up until they start to uh, make some sales, start to get some traffic over them, and then I will monitor, monitor them. The, the other thing I did uh, when I was going through a lot of my old ads is I thought, well, I've missed a bit of a trick here, because I'm very lazy, I have been very lazy with Amazon ads. I, I'm not, not a big fan of them. I'm hoping that what Kirsten has talked to me about is going to turn this round for me. But 
with the Amazon ads, I've, I've tended to bundle my non-fiction books together. So I have a single ad, and I would have my five-figure fiction formula, my create and sell digital products, and my starter podcast. Now, when you think about it, when you do that, I always do automated ads. I don't put my own keywords in. I don't put my own ASINs in. I, I just use, I let Amazon learn, the AI if you want, learn, and then um, show those adverts to the correct readers. And I thought, well, I, I've done a stupid thing there, really, because you've got three non-fiction books. Each of those non-fiction books requires a different set of keywords to find its ideal audience. And all I'm doing is confusing the life out of Amazon, because Amazon, on the one hand, is trying to find people who want to read a podcast book, then people who want to create digital products, and then also people who are self-published authors. And in, in terms of, of an algorithm or an AI trying to figure out who to present those books to, it's completely confusing. So I, I think I'm, I missed a trick there. So what I've done is I've stripped out my non-fiction books and I've now created ads for them separately because I think that makes a lot more sense. Now it's early days yet, I've only just started to get the traffic over those adverts but I'll creep the bids up bit by bit. You don't want to overbid, but if you underbid, you're not going to get any clicks and impressions. So I'm in that process at the moment, but I'll let you know how those Amazon ads go. I really feel that I need to, I don't need to do it at a big scale, but I really feel that I ought to use Amazon ads because it's putting your books in front of millions of buyers. If you're on the Amazon site and you see an Amazon advert, you are a buyer. You don't you tend not to go to Amazon to browse in the way that you do on Google. You tend to go to Amazon with your credit card poised and ready. So it makes a lot more sense to try and grapple with Amazon ads and make them work. Because if you think about it on Facebook, it, it's remarkable that I've sold as many books as I have on Facebook, because people don't go to Facebook to buy. If they buy on Facebook, that's a, that's a byproduct of them going frankly, to look at their friends' dinners and what their cats are up to. That, that's why you go to Facebook generally. You're going there for social reasons. You don't go to Facebook to buy. So the fact that so many people have bought my book on Facebook is, is extraordinary, really, because that's not what they're there to do. On Amazon, that's precisely what they're there to do. And that's really why I want to just keep throwing myself back into the ring with these Amazon ads and try and make them do much better. So... That, that was a really useful session with, uh, with KISS and I got plenty of homework to, to go away with just there. I've also been looking at my Facebook ads this week. Now, uh, I, I made sure I did this before I had my second session with KISS because if there were any problems or queries that I had, I wanted to make sure that I brought them into the second session that we had. So I made sure that all the things that KISS had told me about Facebook ads I'd put into practice before we spoke. And one of the things that I was doing is I created 90-day engaged audiences on my advert. So if I just track you through it, on Facebook, I have three Facebook business pages. And I don't use those to be sociable or you know, to say what I'm up to or do any kind of writerly stuff on those. Those three Facebook pages are solely for the intention of advertising. So I have Great Thriller Reads, which is for my thrillers, obviously. I have, I can't remember what the sci-fi one's called. I have a sci-fi page, and I have a non-fiction page, which is called uh, Stuff Made Simple. And I only use those for the adverts that I use online. So what I did this week with a little trick that Kirsten showed me with custom audiences is I created a custom audience of Facebook users who have engaged with my thriller Facebook page 
in the last 90 days. So I created a custom audience and then I did two things with that custom audience. The first thing I did is I then created a lookalike audience, a 1% uh, size lookalike audience. Now what a lookalike audience is, is Facebook takes a look at the, the people who've been engaged with my Facebook page for the last 90 days. It then tries to find other people with the same profile who behave just like them and then I could use that lookalike audience in my adverts. And what it allows me to do in very simple terms is it allows me to find more people who will buy my book. Um, but I don't have to target them by genre or by the books they read. So uh, effectively, Facebook's AI finds me a lovely big audience to sell my books to. So I created a lookalike audience, and then I sent my existing adverts to that lookalike audience... And then the other thing I did with that audience, and remember these are engaged people, people who've been on the Facebook page in the last 90 days. I then set up an exclusion clause or exclusion rule in my, Facebook, my existing Facebook ads, which basically said, show this ad to people who like whatever the authors are, whatever the genres are, you know, however I'd set the audience, but exclude people who visited the page in the last 90 days. Now, what that means is people who've already seen the advert won't see it again. So what I need to do with those adverts, I'm trying to get away from ad fatigue. If you keep seeing the same old advert in your feed and you're not, you've no intention of buying, that actually becomes annoying and people can then mark it as a, an advert that they don't want to see. So I don't want my audience, my target audience, to get ad fatigue. I don't want them to report my ad because that will then make it more expensive for me. So by setting up a rule on the four ads, I've got two ads in the US, two ads in the UK. I have, uh, they have a, a UK and a US audience. So one of them is broad targets and one of them is narrow targets. So the broad targets um, is looking for people by uh, psychological thriller readers, crime readers, Kindle readers, that sort of thing. And then the other audience is based upon the specific authors that they like. So Harlan Coburn... Um, Lidwood Barclay, people like that, people uh, who write books kind of like what, what I'm writing. Uh, but it means that they won't get that ad fatigue. So uh, I'm giving those a try at the moment. The lookalike audience is going through what it's, what's called a learning phase. So it doesn't quite get that audience right. It has to you know, do a bit of whatever AIs do, uh, what they do overnight, um, AI stuff. And um, that it will learn, and then it will sort of set that lookalike audience for me. That I, what I'm hoping, obviously, then is that I could be getting clicks with a brand new audience that Facebook has magicked for me, and be paying about the same amount per click as I am on my targeted adverts. So then, similarly, what I would hope, I hope that I'll get a little bit more engagement on my my usual ads because I'm not sending those adverts to the same old people time and time again. But again, as ever, I, you know, it's all new for me. I'm just trying all the stuff that I learned with Kiss, and, and I'll let you know how that goes in future weeks. Now, this is one of these things like Fight Club that comes up next, because I, I got an email from the Prime Reading Program this week. And on the Prime Reading Program, at the end of the email, they always say, uh, you know, please don't talk about this deal. So it's a bit like Fight Club uh, is Prime Reading. And uh, so I'm not supposed to talk about the Prime Reading Programme, but I can give you an overview of it and not talk to you about you know, too many details. And, and hopefully I won't be hit by an assassin's bullet uh, for revealing some of these details. But I was very pleased this week to, to be invited to put my 12-pack into the Prime Reading Programme on Amazon.com. 
Now, I have been invited to the Prime Reading Programme before, and I think, I can't remember what it was, it was probably Don't Tell Meg, and it was probably Don't Tell Meg when it was uh, a brand new book, and I'd had book bubs on it, and I was selling a, a lot of copies of it. Uh, you know, Don't Tell Meg is quite an old book now, so when I do book bubs on it, it doesn't sell as many copies, but um, pretty sure it was Don't Tell Meg that I put into the Prime Reading Programme. And basically, the Prime Reading Programme, they say to you, we'd like to put your book into .com, .co.uk, India, or whatever it is, and they pay you a, a set fee for a period of, of three months, I think it is, about, yeah, three months. And you can still make sales and get the page read, so I can still you know, flog that book on uh, Amazon and Facebook, and I can still keep the proceeds from that for the next three months. But anything that sells directly through the Prime program, I don't receive direct remuneration for. Instead, they're going to send me, you know, a certain number of dollars. And I'm assuming these are the things that I'm not supposed to talk about. So I'm just going to give you, you know, the kind of generic information about this. So... I'm really pleased. I had a little think about it, and I just made sure that I wasn't signing up for something that I shouldn't be signing up for, but I had a think about it. And if you recall me saying in last week's podcast episode, I said to you that my 12-pack of thrillers has been built as a marketing machine. And by a marketing machine, there are two prompts to sign up to my mailing list in order to get the Don't Tell Meg and the Walker Bay Trilogy slide sets, uh, the locations of the book. So there's, there's two ways I encourage you to sign up to my mailing list. And then there are two cross sales. At the end of the book, I say there's one standalone story that you haven't read yet. That's now you see her and you could buy this for full price. And then, of course, what I've just added to the deal in the last couple of months is you now have a trilogy, a box set of Walker Bay uh, stories, uh, box set two or season two, whatever you want to call it. And so uh, when I sell that 12-pack, if people like the books, I stand to make a box set sale or three individual books, um, books four, five, six in the Walker Bay series, and now you see her. And that's worth about £10 to me, more, more than £10 actually, it's worth about £12 to me, uh, about $15, $16 uh, on full price books. So I make one sale of 99 pence or cents, and I can make another £15, £16, uh, sorry, what is it, £12 worth or $60 worth of sales, plus potentially get somebody into my mailing list. So to have that book in Amazon.com and to have Amazon thrashing the life out of that for me, although I only get a fixed fee for the sales that they make in the three months, I thought, I've got to do this because there are so many outlets there for me to make extra money. Now, I do keep the extra money on the other books that people buy once Amazon Prime has put it in their hands. So I have accepted that deal. And it's actually, the, the other downside to this is that I have to keep my books in KDP Select for that three-month period. And it's going to mean that they, they just bump over. I think I was telling you last week, the 6th of May is when I can take my books out. Well, it's going to mean that I miss that 6th of May deadline. Now, just as I was saying to you last week, that actually I don't massively mind my books having a break from BookBub promos because they'll probably do better for people uh, you know, forgetting them and not seeing them in BookBub more recently. So it's going to mean, was it 6th of May, June, July, August? It's going to mean probably I can't put those books into list them wide and then get another chance of getting a BookBub featured deal until about August. But again, that works okay 
because if you think that I'll have the next series, the Balkan Bay series, if I get it written, uh, will be launching in November, that takes me to August. So August, September, October, November, they'll be out of KDP Select about November the 6th. So I will then launch, I'll be launching the, the Morecambe Bay book, blimey, what is it, seven, in the first week of November normally. So that's going to work, that, that'll work okay, I think. It'll just about work okay. So long as I get book bubs within that three-month window, that's obviously the proviso for it. So anyhow, I, I just felt that I wanted to thrash this book. Uh, I wanted Amazon to thrash this book for me on Amazon.com. And I'm always keen to just try new things. And, uh, well, I'll let you know. Again, as always, I'll update you on this podcast and let you know how that works out for me. Okay, so uh, what else have we got going on? Oh, the author platform blueprint. This is the non-fiction book that I've written since New Year. I have now uploaded that to Amazon. Sean Stevens at Flintlock Covers sent me the paperback cover for that book. So the paperback version has now been uploaded to Ingram Spark and to the Amazon KDP dashboard. And in actual fact, the, I think that actually means, I'm pretty sure of it, uh, you don't seem to be able to stall or delay the paperback. So I think the paperback of that book's already available. It doesn't really matter much, to be honest with you. But the, the e-book won't release until the 23rd of March. So Amazon, oh, sorry, your Amazon, your author platform blueprint, my first non-fiction book of the year, that's all ready, primed and ready to go. Uh, it's on Ingram Spark right now. It's on Amazon uh, paperback right now. And it's on pre-sale with the ebook. So that book's done, dusted and ready to go. Just to mention it once again, I saved $49 using the Alliance of Independent Authors discount code. Uh, that, that in one fell swoop was about 50% of this year's membership fee. So just to upload that book, it was going to cost me $49, but I got it free because I used the Alliance of Independent Authors discount code. And even if you don't join the Alliance of Independent Authors, what I would recommend you do before you ever upload a book to Ingram Spark, there's usually a couple of discount codes flying around. Even if not, I can tell you that the Alliance of Independent Authors always has a discount code that's current. Uh, but if you don't, for whatever reason, you don't want to join the Alliance of Independent Authors, always just do a little Google search for, um, for what's it called, Ingram Spark, Ingram Spark discount code, because you might find that somebody else has got one going in general circulation that will save you an awful lot of money on the fees. I had a real tedious job to do this week. This is not the kind of work that I enjoy. This is the kind of work that you need to get a virtual assistant for. But I needed to go through all of my books, all this messing around I've been doing recently by putting my non-fiction and my sci-fi books, listing them wide again. I needed to go through all my pricing to make sure that everything was correctly aligned. Now, the reason you have to do this is because you'll get a bulky letter from Amazon. If, if, you, if you've got something priced differently uh, on another platform and Amazon discovers this, you'll get a bulky uh, email telling you to adjust your price because Amazon always wants to have the most competitive price so it's not a thing that you should do you should always make sure your prices are in alignment with your Amazon prices so uh, of course we listed multiple territories I listed Amazon.com UK Europe India I think we have Brazil Mexico Japan in the in the Amazon dashboard so across all the other outlets that you list on, you've got to make sure that at least those prices are aligned 
in those territories. So I had to go through, uh, what is it, five, four, no, yeah, five uh, non-fiction products, which is basically the four standalone non-fiction books I've got, plus the box set. Then I had to go through, ooh, how many products have I got in sci-fi? Um, four, eight, nine. Nine different product formats in sci-fi. So that's two trilogies, the standalone books, the box set, and the seven-pack. And I had to make sure that all of the prices were aligned across draft the digital across uh, Google Books, across Amazon, and across Kobo. So if you multiply all that up, that's a lot of boring work to be done, a lot of checking and messing around and boring work to be done. And uh, every now and then, you will set a price, maybe in Google, and Google, uh, you might put a, you know, a 99, 4.99 on it, or something like that, and then you get to Amazon, and Amazon won't let you put that price, or it will say you've got to put a higher price. So there's, there's a lot of a lot of messing around like that until you, you get your prices right. Anyhow, long story short, it was very, very boring work. I did it over a couple of days, but all my prices for the books that are listed wide are now aligned, and I'm not going to touch them for a little while. They can just sit there. I'm not going to play with it or do anything with it. And, of course, the next thing that comes up, at least, um, by the way, going into Amazon Prime, it postpones me having to do that across all my thrillers for a little while because when the thrillers go wide again, I'm going to have to go through all those thrillers. And how many products have I got in thrillers now? It must be, we must be into the teens when you take into account all the box sets and the, you know, the permutations of the 12-pack and all that. That's a lot of messing around with prices. So I'm quite pleased that's been postponed for another three months with the thrillers. I got a nice uh, email from Pip Reed. Pip's a friend of the show, been listening for a long time. Pip deserves a medal for listening to so many episodes. And Pip says, I enjoyed your latest podcast, especially learning about your PR project and discussion with the local bookstore. Funnily enough, we've just been through the same process. It's interesting, actually, because uh, a a lot of listeners who've been with this podcast for a long time, we're often doing things or moving our career on at about the same time. I've, it, this is why I got consultancy with Kirsten Oliphant, because she's always been slightly ahead of me, and I've always wanted to hear what she has to say, because I want to learn what she's doing. She's always ahead of me all the time. Uh, you know, She got those first five-figure months before I did, and I'm there listening really carefully, trying to figure out how she did it. So I, I, I always feel like I'm a couple of steps behind Kirsten. And also, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, as Pippa's done, will, will email me. So I've just done that. Or we've, just, we've just succeeded with that too. So Pip says she's just been through the same process. There's a bookstore near Seattle. And they contacted uh, Pip saying that they wanted to stock the activity books. Now, uh, Pip produces and her team produce Bible Pathway Adventures. They're beautifully illustrated activity books for, uh, uh, for religious education. And they sell throughout the world. Uh, Pip does a really good job with this. They're beautifully illustrated, uh, amazing books, really well produced. And so what Pip was saying is she directed the bookshop to Ingram Spark Outlets, just as I did with the Carlisle Bookshop. And they then went on to order 22 titles, which is three of each title that Pip's got. And she's got a nice photograph um, on the, of, of the sort of bookshelf with all her titles on it in the bookshelf and she says I can't tell you how satisfying it was to get that photo of the books in the bookstore she said that's seven years of hard work right there and if you're in the first year of your indie author career this stuff takes time you know it's taken me uh, well have five years I'm just coming up to about five years I think 
of my writing. Is it five, maybe even six since I actually started writing the stories? I think it was. I think I started writing the stories in 2014. I think the podcast. When did the podcast start? 2016, something like that. Anyway, I'll work it out. I've got it all written down somewhere. But it takes a long time. You know, the first thing is you've got to write the first book. And when you write the first book, you've got to work out how to sell it. When you've written the first book, you've got to do the next book. And then you learn how to market them and how to list them on different channels. And you might try doing audio books or hardbacks or paperbacks. And you just have to learn all this stuff bit by bit by bit. So in Pip's case, seven years to get those books in a, you know, a free, a freestanding bookshop, nothing to do with Indies at all, and asking to order them. That's a brilliant achievement. Now, Pip went on to say that she offers the standard 55% return and destroy option. Now, this is what put me off bookshops in the first place. When I first listed on Ingram Spark, and I, I, I did it several years ago, and then I left it, and then I, I've come back to it more recently. But the first thing that shocked me was that if you're going to get bookshops to, to stock your books and buy them, they expect you to have a 55% discount on the books and they expect this thing called return and destroy, which is if they, they decide to buy 10 of your books with a 55% discount and say they don't sell eight of them, they just destroy them and you get charged for them as, a, as an author. Well, my view was I'm not exposing my business to that. You imagine if 10 bookshops did that. Now, subsequently, I've listened to other podcasts and I think uh, the, the thinking these days is, is that bookshops run on such narrow margins, think, things are so tight these days, that they don't over-order. They wouldn't order a box of 100 of your books and then get 99 cent off to pulp. It doesn't work like that in bookshops nowadays, but I, I think it might have done in the past. Now, I was interested, I said to Pip, I was interested to hear that she does return and destroy, because that's the one thing I won't do. I, I, when I price my books on Ingram Spark, I, I, I overprice them, to allow the bookshops to get them at a reasonable price and still allow me to make a pound or a dollar. I don't make much on the books at all. Uh, this is why I say they're loss leaders. And this is why I don't get too excited about it. But I think I make about a pound, you know, a dollar on each paperback that I sell. But I price them on Ingram Spark so that by the time you've taken 55% off, I can take a pound or a dollar and they can still get the books at a price where they can make a profit on it. And another thing... Uh, about the books I don't uh, this is another lesson I learned very early on uh, from The Secret Bunker because of course the first books that I had I, I just got lucky with this is that The Secret Bunker have always stopped my books in their bookshop in their sort of tourist bookshop and what I noticed when I visited The Secret Bunker is that they put quite a high price on those books because I didn't have a recommended retail price on the back of the books and this is what I would recommend to you if you self-publish don't put a recommended retail price on the back of the books because you're shooting yourself in the foot then in terms of working out how you're going to create a margin. So I don't put any price on my books. I do whatever shenanigans I have to do to try and make a buck or two when I sell them through Ingram Spark. But I allow the bookshop to price them at whatever they think they can get from it. And that in turn allows the bookshop to make a decent profit on it. Now, you know, so again, pay, at the moment, I might review this uh, at a future date, but I don't sell enough paperbacks for me to get too excited about that. I produce paperbacks more as a service to readers, um, you know, rather than making money. I make money on ebooks. That's where we all make our money because they're so profitable. So it's a it's a service to the bookshops. So don't put your price on the cover, um, you know, because otherwise you're going to get caught in this mathematical process of trying to give a fifty five percent discount, but allowing everybody to make a little bit of money 
along the way. Now, I will not put my books on return and destroy. Uh, to, to me, that goes against everything, every sort of principle I've got about entrepreneurialism, <laughs> about entrepreneurship, whatever the word is. You know, in that I would, I'm not going to let you take £100 worth of my product and then decide that you want to scrap it and I pick the bill up. That's an exposure I'm not happy to accept. So, um, so I don't. I, I won't put return and destroy. But I was interested to hear that Pip had put return and destroy uh, on there. And uh, Pip, congratulations. It's lovely to see that uh, wooden bookshelf there in a lovely, busy, colourful bookshop. And there's all of Pip's amazing books on there, uh, you know, ordered as if Pip were a traditional publisher, even though she's a self-published uh, author or, or the company's self-publishing. And they just look as good as as fantastic as any other book in that bookshop. And that's what we're aiming for as self-published authors. Our book should never stand out as being different or worse produced than a traditional book. You shouldn't be able to tell the difference. And you, obviously, when you look at Pip's books, you can't tell the difference. They look amazing. And I can tell you this, Pip, because I used to use books just like that when I was a primary school teacher. You know, that, that shelf image that you sent me look, would not look out of place in a primary school classroom. Those resource books look every bit as good and frankly better and more enticing than anything I ever used as a teacher. So that's great. Thank you very much for letting me know about that. I had said to you that I was going to set up a book funnel primo for my non-fiction books and I did that at the weekend. I just thought, let's go on with it. And, uh, but I've cancelled it already, <laughs> would you believe that? There's a bit of a story to do with this. Now, I haven't used book funnel for ages. My view is that subscribers you get from book funnel are not high quality, they're freebie seekers. I'm not a fan of freebie seekers. Freebie seekers tend to give you poorer reviews, uh, lower reviews, um, and you know they're, they're the something for nothing brigade. And if they, I don't think they take enough time to work out whether a book is for them or not, and yet they're very fast to condemn a book if they get it for free and subsequently don't like it, almost like it's your fault. So I, I think if you put, my, my view is, you know, over five years or whatever it is I've done this, is that if there's a price on a book, even if it's 99 pence or cents, if they're paying for it, they at least take that, you know, couple of seconds to work out whether it's a book that they want or they don't want. Now, uh, I, I've been interested to hear that this has been confirmed. If you listen to the Six Figure Authors podcast, that's their view too. That you, uh, I heard Joanna Penn say, I'm sure I heard Joanna Penn saying it the other day too, that you take a hit when you have a perma-free book because people who get a book for free don't take the time and trouble to work out whether it's for them, yet they're equally vociferous as somebody who paid £5 for it if they subsequently go on to find that they don't like it. So why I'm telling you this is I don't really like freebie seekers. Um, so I set up a, a non-fiction uh, giveaway on BookFunnel and it was non-fiction books for authors. Uh, I thought that was probably a clever way to do it. So I, I listed five-figure fiction formula, a 10% sample, I'm not going to give the whole thing away, and then at the end of the 10% sample, you'd say, if you're enjoying the book, buy the full book. And then I listed uh, Author Platform Blueprints, which is a book I've got coming out on the 23rd of March. Again, 10% sample. And I was trying to work out, I'm allowed to, as the host of a giveaway, I'm allowed to list um, three books. And I thought, what I should do, um, if you go to my use vellum on a PC blog page, I have a sort of lead, lead bait where you can 
actually download a PDF of the article so that you can print it out and scribble on it and look at all the pictures all at once, like a, like a mini e-book. And I, li I decided to list that. I thought that's quite a compelling thing to have in a, an author's giveaway. So I listed my three books. Um, BookFunnel advertises it for you, and people are always looking for these books. And I, I said very clearly, I want non-fiction books that are specifically of interest to authors. And then I gave a list of the sort of titles or topics that would be great for that giveaway. And so you wait and you check and you see who's submitting books. And this, <laughs> this brought back memories of doing it before, um, is that you get all sorts of people submitting all sorts of irrelevant stuff and you then have to go through it and say, no, um, I mean, I, what, what are the examples? Here's an example for you. You know when you list on Amazon Kindle, and they give you those free crappy book covers. And you, when you see these on Amazon, you think you ain't going to sell any copies of that book because that's the free default covers. You haven't even taken the effort to, to get a proper book cover, even on Fiverr, for goodness sake, for $5. Well, somebody submitted a how to be great, effectively, how to be fantastic at self-publishing book. And it had one of those covers on it. I thought, well, you've shot yourself in the foot before we even draw breath because you haven't used the proper cover. You, you, how can you tell people about self-publishing if you've got this crappy cover on from, from Amazon Kindle? So I thought, well, you're out straight away because that, that, to me, that reflects badly on me. If I list a book like that, that quite clearly <laughs> you can't know anything about self-publishing if they're using those default covers, um, I, I can't list that book and it reflect well on me as the host of the giveaway. So we got a couple of decent books in there. They were specifically for authors, and, um, but they, they weren't massively great quality. And then I kept getting people listing books, you know, Pilates and all sorts of stuff. And there was no, no mention of authors. They hadn't uh, customised their sales pitch on the book funnel page. They'd done nothing at all to observe the instructions. I think I got up to something like maybe eight decent titles. I was after 30, and I thought, I can't be bothered. <laughs> I can't be bothered with this. So I just pulled the plug on the thing, because people don't read it, and you've got all these chances trying to sneak books in there. It's like, you know, when I've done uh, thrillers in the past, when I've done uh, book funnel giveaways for thrillers or sci-fi, uh, and, I, and I now I always I, I say in the blurb, um, no pictures, no covers with guys without shirts on. And you still get the guys without shirts, um, you know, people, I think people are so desperate to try and get their books into, in, into readers' hands that they just try everything. And that's the impression I got from this book funnel promo this week. You know, people aren't reading it, they just think, oh, that says non-fiction, I'll just put the book in. And I just thought, you know, this is not going to reflect well on my brand. Uh, because I've made sure my books look the part and all have decent covers on and things like that. So I, I just decided, I, 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 I decided to pull the plug on it. And there is another reason why I decided to pull the plug on it, and that's because I'm newly invigorated with Amazon ads from Kirsten Oliphant. Now, from my session with Kirsten Oliphant, I'm looking at selling my non-fiction books via Amazon ads for full price. So that's £10, $10, well, not 9.99. Uh, if I sell the paperback and you sell paperbacks in non-fiction and it's $5.99 pounds if I sell the ebook, there's a load of profit in those books if I sell them at full price so the reason that I pulled that and thought do you know what I could do better than this uh, was because I'm newly invigorated with Amazon ads it wasn't just a sort of oh I can't be bothered with this I have got a different option and it just kind of took me back to a a dark place of, you know, d desperate new authors and freebie seekers on book funnel. So, 
I'm not going to do that. Uh, it just felt like just too much rubbish being submitted. You know, it was it was it was rubbish. Like I couldn't list that in a giveaway that has my name on it, and and it helped my brand in any way. And I just thought this is going to be a struggle to get to 30 decent books. So I, I just pulled the plug in it nice and early, you know, before I had to disappoint a lot of people. So that's a shame, but I did try it again, and I don't think I'll be going back there. I'm, I'm going to try and sell the books at full price and, and not go into freebie land. I think that's going to be my, my revised strategy with that. I was very pleased this week to find out that I'd sold a rack of the grid books on Overdrive. Now, I list my books on Overdrive in Drafter Digital, so my my non-fiction books and my sci-fi books have just been relisted wide, of course, which means that I've put them all into Overdrive. And Overdrive is, is, allows your books to go into libraries. And I noticed that I'd, uh, I've started... To, I, I tell you what, I do, like, I do like listing wide because although I don't make a lot of money on the other, other channels, it is nice to see money coming in from Kobo, from Google, and from draft to digital It's just nice to see money coming in even though it's much lower than Amazon, it is nice to see money coming in from the other portals. And this week, I got one of these Amazon, uh, not Amazon, drafted digital emails that told me that I'd sold, uh, a, you know, an amount worth having on Overdrive. I thought, oh, that's libraries, that's interesting. So I, I went into the statistics and I found out that some very delightful librarian somewhere in the world has, thank you very much, bought the Grid 1, 2 and 3 and the box set for lending out on a library. So I think that is officially, well, it's the first one I've noticed, the first time that somebody's actually bought those books on Overdrive. And when you sell books on Overdrive, you sell them at a higher price uh, because the, the, the library sort of pays, a, 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 say, a premium price for it, but they, they, I think they, Drafted Digital usually recommends a price, but it's much higher than your list price if somebody bought it. And, and it's, it's worth having, you know, on, on four books. He'd have to make me notice and have a look at it. But it also pleases me because um, although libraries and traditional bookshops are never going to be my main sales outlet, that doesn't mean that I don't want to sell through them. I want to sell everywhere. And, and it's, it's a great thought to think that people can borrow my books from libraries, as, as it is an amazing thought to think that the local bookshop has got my, my books on the shelf somewhere. So it's not a priority for me because it takes a lot of work and brings very few results. But when these things start to happen of their own accord, of course I'm delighted about that. You know, of course I want my books in libraries, of course I want them in traditional bookshops. It's just that I make my money flogging them on Amazon. That's where all the money is. So I go where the money is, but I always want these other things to happen. So I, yeah, I'm very pleased about it. A good old draft of digital for making that option available for us. And when I'm talking about draft to digital, I just wanted to let you know that when you're listing your books on draft to digital, they give you a load of ticks, um, sort of tick points, uh, tick options when you're listing your book. And I just wanted to make sure that you always tick out the, the promo emails link when you list on draft to digital, because this is how I instantly made sales when I relisted the books. There's a little checkbox there that says, um, send out an email every time I've got a new book under this author name. And Draft the Digital does that. So consequently, when I republished all the books and had a new book, it sent out a lovely email to people who'd got books before and said, Paul T, you've got a new book out. And I subsequently made sales from that. So just as I always tell you, when you're listing uh, to, to get your books, your brand new books, list them before they go live on BookBub, because BookBub will send that free email to your followers and you will make sales off it. When you've got a list of followers, of course, 
do the same with your books in Drafter Digital, because those emails that Drafter Digital sends out on your behalf will always make sales. It's just a free helping hand that they give you. Uh, they're called you uh, release email notifications. Always check that box when you list in Draft2 Digital. Okay, so that is it for writing news this week. I just wanted to let you know uh, where we are with Spain. I've kept quiet about this purposely for the last couple of weeks because things have been going on in the background. And if you recall, I think it was before Christmas, we were trying to get our... Uh, uh, the basic thing that we had to do first was to get this thing called uh, a padron. And a, a padron, I mean, the closest thing I could liken it to in, in the United Kingdom is, is being like on the electoral register or being registered for council tax. It's just that they know you're there and where you're living. And so we knew that we had to get this padron sorted out, first of all, before we could even start residency. So we went through the, the pain of, of queuing for an hour and a half and uh, you know, having to get an appointment which was just deadly because there weren't very many appointments available. And I was in and out within five minutes and told, you know, dismissed promptly and told that my contract was in English and it needed to be in Spanish or Spanish and English. And at that point I thought, well, I, I, if I'm going to get like a posh contract, that that's not really fair on the lady who's renting our house out because it might... Uh, you know, give us as tenants rights that she doesn't want to give us. It's a holiday house, for goodness sake. She just rented a holiday house out to us for four or five months. And I, I didn't want to, you know, make that imposition on her. But I can't remember what happened. We'd given it up. We thought, okay, we're not going to be able to do this. That's a shame. We've fallen at the first hurdle. And I can't remember how, how I got chatting to her, but I, I just felt that she'd be receptive if I said to her, I think I just asked her the question, you don't happen to have the contract in Spanish, do you? And I got an amazing reply which is that's interesting that you say that we've got um, somebody else who rents through this firm that they use has asked the same question they're doing trying to do what you're doing so because she was receptive to it i said well if i if i pay to get this contract translated into spanish and of course you can have that translation and use that in the future if anybody needs it are you are you happy with that and she was so i went on to people per hour i found a really well rated you know professional um, spanish translator uh, I wanted somebody, you know, technical, not somebody who's just going to stick it into Google Translate. I wanted somebody who was going to properly translate it. And I paid them, I think it was about just short of £100, I think it was, to translate the whole contract. Got it translated. The lady who were renting the house from in the UK, I emailed it to her. She signed and dated every sheet, so it was what's called a wet signature in pen. She sent it back to me in Spain. I signed it with a wet signature. Uh, we went to get another padron again. And this time, uh, well, we, we bring translators now because it's a lot easier. And we got the padron. So when you've got the padron, it's then worth uh, applying for the, the residency paperwork. And so we applied for the residency paperwork. And this time I decided to just pay a firm of solicitors. And again, this was as a result, we get loads of free newspapers in Torrevieja, we pick them up at the supermarket. I just happened to read an article from a, I, th I can't, they're not even based in Torrevieja, they're based somewhere else in Spain. And I just happened to read this article, and it was exactly about our situation, about living in Spain before uh, the UK left the EU, and for people who wanted to get their residency rights. Uh, and, and, and so I, emailed them and said can I pay for half an hour of consultancy and see whether we can we can do this and, and the lady gave me all sorts of lovely replies to my questions one of those being that we can stay beyond March 
without me paying tax. We can stay till June without me paying tax here because they do it by they don't do it by the UK tax year, which is April to April. They do it by a calendar year. Um, so that was one of the objections to staying beyond March was, am I going to have to pay tax? Well, I'm not going to have to pay tax. So that's that's great. So anyhow, um, we signed this over to this this firm of solicitors. I had to go through all sorts of contortions with paperwork, and we. We bought this printer, as you know, I've been scanning documents and they've been saying, well, can you show me this and can you get me a bank statement that shows that balance and this, that and the other and everything's been scanned and rescanned and redone. And we finally got there last week where they said, right, that's ready, you know, we're ready to submit these documents. And they submitted them and there's, um, I think they've got about three months until they, they have to give you a response to this. And so we were just settling in, frankly, we were just sort of settling in, thinking, well, that's all right, we'll just wait a couple of weeks. And we got a response this week. When we were in Alicante, I got an email that said, oh, you've done it. You've got your, um, your residency document. So we, we, we can now stay in Spain. And just to explain what this means, it doesn't mean we're Spanish citizens. What it means is that we keep our rights, the, the, the rights that we had before the United Kingdom left Europe, we preserve those rights, which means that I can stay here, or we can stay here now um, as long as we want. I could live here if I wanted to. Um, we've got kind of NIE numbers, uh, sort of tax numbers as well. Um, but similarly, we can go back to the UK. It's just as it was for uh, expats, if you want, uh, before the withdrawal agreement came into effect on January the 31st. Now, normally, we would be on Schengen rules, which mean we, we can't stay more than three months in 180 days. But in this scenario... We could stay in Spain for a long winter, which is really what the whole point of it was. We could stay, you know, four to six months for winter. And so long as I don't stay over 183 days, I won't have to pay tax out here, which, as you know, I don't, I don't want to do as an autumno, which is where they charge you 300 euros a month whether you've made that money or not. So I want to avoid being an autumno. So it gives us the combination of things that we're after. And, and basically, I mean, we, you know, we might never live in Spain. We might not come back to Spain again. But what it gives us is the option. Uh, it gives us the right to do that. So we've got one more step to do. We now have to go uh, to Alicante, to a police station there, where they, they take your fingerprints. Uh, I think they take a couple of photos, checks and probably, uh, you, you know, your passport, the, the live version of the passport rather than the scanned version. And then that's it. You get a little plastic card with your photograph on it, and that's you. You've got your residency rights in Spain. So we've just got to do that, and then we're good to go. Now, also last week, um, the last time I spoke to you about our plans to leave Spain, I said it was going to be end of March. Well, we decided to extend to the end of April, so we've extended the house to the end of April now because we figure that's about right. I've got this kind of FOMO about not missing out on the vaccine in the UK because they're vaccinating faster in the UK. I'm trying to think, right, as a 55-year-old, about when they're going to be calling me in for the vaccine. I think it's going to be about April, May time. Um, so, you know, we want to get the vaccine as soon as we're back in the UK. We've also got the worry, of course, of them introducing quarantine hotels for Spain. So we're, we've got all these little permutations. I didn't want to leave Spain until we got the paperwork. But as soon as I got that little plastic card in my hand, as far as I can see, we, we're kind of free to stay on as long as we want, but we can leave also as soon as we need to. So if, for instance, I got that plastic card in my hand and all of a sudden they said, oh, in a week's time, you're going to have to quarantine for 10 days at a cost of £1,750 if, you if you're coming from Spain, 
I'm out of there like a shot before that happens. Uh, but so long as I've got that plastic card, I keep my rights. So it's all, it's all kind of very complicated. It's all been, you know, quite an ordeal as a process. The paperwork, oh, the paperwork is horrendous. And they just keep making you go back and say, have you got this, have you got that? Have you got your inside leg measurement from 1962? I wasn't born in 1962, but can we have it anyway? It's just like that. It's just ridiculous. And, um, the, you know, the level of paperwork is ridiculous. But we jumped through those hoops, and we now have the right to stay here. So we're very, very pleased about that. We were a, bit, a little bit shell-shocked, to be honest with you. But as soon as that plastic card's in my hand, I'll know it's finally done. I don't trust the system here. It's too administrative. Until I'm holding the hand, that card in my hand, I won't go skip it off down the street just yet. And then finally for this week, uh, it's been quite a long one this week. Apologies for that. It's been nearly an hour. I know some of you like them long and some of you like them short, so it's a long one this week. Um, I started my March running challenge this week. So uh, Monday was the 1st of March. I'm doing a great run challenge, which means I got 15 runs to do, 15 5K runs by the end of March. So I've done three runs so far this week, and they've all been in different places. So on Monday I ran in Torrevieja. In, on Wednesday, I run along the beach in Alicante, and on, what's the day? Wednesday. Is that right? No, Thursday. And Thursday, I ran along the beach in Benidorm. And when I'm in Benidorm, I run every day. I don't care how tired I am. It's so nice out there. I like to run every day. So I'm going to hit that 15-run total, I think, fairly fast this month, simply because we're in Benidorm till next Tuesday, I'm in Alicante on Wednesday, and I will run every day on those weeks. I'll be up about, what, seven, seven or eight maybe uh, by the next time I, I speak to you. So uh, I've no worries about hitting the running challenge for March uh, in this particular month. But it's so nice running along that sort of you know, sea line, that beach. Uh, I just can't resist it, and I, I don't want to miss any days uh, you know, because it's just so nice out there in the mornings. Okay, that's it for this week. More news for you next week. Have a great week of writing, and I will speak to you soon. You can check out the show notes and listen to the back catalogue episodes at paulteague.net forward slash podcast. If you want to record a question for me to answer on the show, please head for paulteague.net forward slash question. If you've heard something that's helpful to you in your author business and you'd like to support the show, then you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash paulteague. That's it for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have a great week of writing. From me, Paul Teague, bye bye for now.